Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. My guest today is Ashley Riley Sosa. Thank you for coming to this podcast. And why don't you tell me what we are going to talk about today? Because it's quite a specific topic. Yeah, well, you'd asked me to um, to come on and talk about Native American history, um, and my area of research specialization is not a very common area of research specialization. Yeah, I, I know about that. Yeah, I specialize in the history of Indigenous California. Um, so I could talk very generally about Native American history, but if you want the really juicy details, probably talking about my research is going to be the the place to start. Uh, yeah. Um, of and thank you for having me. This is really exciting. Thank you for coming. It's, a, yeah. it's an honor. Uh, so why, why does why specifically the California Indigenous thrive? Um, and not so, just general Native yeah. American history? So I was, I was definitely interested in general Native American history. And um, so my family, like a lot of uh, white families from the American South, my dad was born and raised in, uh, for his early childhood in Oklahoma. Um, believed that we we had Cherokee ancestry. So like a lot of white kids with you know Southern roots, yeah. I wanted to learn more about that. And so I got interested in, in Native American history. Uh, and one of the first things that you learn as a white person who becomes interested in Native American history is that you're really not Cherokee. Your family's history is just legend it's not real (laughs) so um so i was quickly disabused of the notion that i had this cherokee ancestry on my dad's side of the family this this Um, this way now what what do you how do you feel about this test that says you know you're like three percent to black you're three five percent has by his body how do you feel about those tests so i've taken one um my dad took one um I think that in my family, that family members were really hoping that there would be some DNA connection to Native American ancestry. We have none. We have none. (laughs) Um, Which I knew. I knew when I took the test um, that that would be the case. Um, But you know, there. It was interesting for me because, um, especially on my mother's side of the family, her her ancestry was shrouded in mystery. So it was just really interesting to kind of like take the test and realize, yeah, there's really there's really not a lot of mystery about where we come yeah. from. Um, my mother was, you know, almost all Portuguese. Um, yeah. My my father was almost all uh, British Isles. Nothing surprising. Um, so, you know, those those tests are kind of fun. But are they um, accurate at all, or do you think there is some? Well, if if. I, I'm not a scientist. <laughs> uh, 
Um, I mean, it seems accurate to me. I mean, it confirmed what I suspected. Yeah. Um, it confirmed, you know, the obvious, I think, in my family. Yeah. Um, as far as people using them to try to determine, hey, you know, am I actually Native American? I think one of the most important things that folks need to keep in mind is that, um, you know, your belonging in a community of people, your belonging yeah. in a culture is not determined by your DNA. Yeah. Um, and, and really, there, there, there is very little connection that you can achieve with a modern day uh, indigenous tribal nation, indigenous community um, through your DNA. Um, you know, it can be an interesting thing to kind of learn about your family and speculate about your family's history. Or if you do genealogy, that's kind of fun to have, you know, some places to, that, that your DNA can point you to research. Yeah. Um, but generally speaking, um, I know that that there are, um, you know, a lot of Native folks are just like, yeah, keep your, <laughs> you take your DNA test and go home. Yeah. Um, and can't blame them. So it was because but of I, your I totally family's interest that you got into Native American history. Yeah. So um, I, I was really lucky that I went to a university for my undergraduate uh, degree that had an excellent Native American studies program. So I have to give a shout out to the University of California at Davis. Um, their Native American studies program was top notch. Um, and so I, I became interested in, in sort of broader questions in Native American history because of that. I took some excellent classes with, um, with some Native historians at UC Davis. And, and ultimately when it came time for me to do my PhD, uh, and decide on a dissertation topic. My, my PhD advisor um, gave me a really, really excellent piece of advice. He said, Ashley, make sure that whatever dissertation topic you decide that the sources that you're going to need to research for that topic are in a location on earth that you would like to be. Um, and so I was born and raised in California and I was like, well, I, I wanna be in California. Um, so I kind of, um, turned that into a California history topic. Yeah. Um, and, and really what it boiled down to was I was really interested in where I had come from. And I tried to settle on a topic that was as close to where I was born and grew up in California as possible. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of, I settled on the history of the indigenous communities surrounding uh, a settler colony in central California called New Helvetia. Yeah. Um, and you're gonna have to give me just a second. Somebody is pounding on my door. No I'm worries. So sorry. No worries at all. So, yeah, I'm sorry about the the little bit quiet, but it, you know, personal problems it happens. It is just a live recording, and yeah. Yep. Yeah. Go. No worries. I'm, I'm just trying to achieve it. Yeah. Carry on. Yeah. Um. So. So the um the native communities that. Uh, were associated with this with this colony. Um, the um, they're they're from two distinct language groups. Uh, one is the Plains Miwok language group, and the other is the Valley Nissanen language group. Um, and these these particular groups of communities, uh, I guess we we should call them, um, were sort of organized into what anthropologists call, or I should say, used to call tribelets, so like mini tribes. Um, but really the way they were organized politically was on a town by town basis. So a, a principal town and it's sort of suburban outlying villages um, constituted one unit, right? And they shared a common culture and a common language with other towns and suburbs 
uh, across this region in Central California along the American River for the Valley Nisinan uh, and the Sacramento River. Um, and uh, along the, in the Sacramento San Joaquin Delta uh, for the Plains Miwok. Um, so I study these two sort of linguistic groups um, in, in their relationship with this colony in Central California, New Helvetia. Are they still here today or are they extinct? That's a great question. So, um, the, you know, the individual towns and communities um, are no longer in their original places. Um, but for example, there is a federally recognized uh, tribe in California, the Ione Band of Miwok Indians um, that is descended from uh, many of these Plains Miwok speaking villages in uh, the Sacramento Delta. Um, one of the really interesting things that I uncovered as I was doing my research um, is that in Central California, a lot of the modern day tribal nations that, um, that are still there are um, what anthropologists call coalescent communities, meaning that these were communities that came together as tribal nations, um, as kind of like survivors, almost like refugees of other communities that had collapsed, particularly during the California right. gold rush. So they united um, together. Exactly, exactly. Um, so the, the, you know, I study like these two language groups um, that, you know, lived in these regions in the 19th century prior to the gold rush. Um, and then I follow their histories into the 20th century when these societies sort of fall apart and then coalesce again as modern, different and then modernize. Groups. Yeah, so the um, the two kind of um, key tribal nations that I that modern day iterations of, of tribal nations that are um, that I research pretty heavily are the Shingle Springs Band of Miwok Indians um, in El Dorado County, California, um, and the uh, Machupta tribe in uh, Butte County, California, in the town of Chico. Um, so these are these are like kind of somewhat remote Northern California um, communities. Um, but of course, these these folks did not necessarily exist in these places as these tribal groupings in, say, 1850, right. right, if that makes sense. Yeah. But when they united together, was it internal conflict or did it go, I assume it didn't go smoothly as we imagined it would? Yeah, so the, the California gold rush is, um, it was incredibly devastating to, um, to indigenous communities yeah. throughout Northern California. Um, so New Helvetia um, is the name of this colony. Most people kind of commonly think of it by its uh, more colloquial name, Sutter's Fort. And um, if you're familiar at all with the California gold rush, and I think you I'm are- a little, we, we actually sure had that episode, yeah. 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 Um, a little bit familiar, yeah. Yeah, so you know that the gold, was, the gold discovery was made at Sutter's Fort. Yeah. Right? Um, it was made at a sawmill, rather. Um, so Sutter's Fort, New Helvetia is like the epicenter of the California gold rush. Um, and although the gold is mined from the foothills that are um, a little bit distant from the heart of the colony, from the fort that was at the heart of the colony, um, the fort and the colony become a place where uh, white settlers from all over, the, well, settlers of all kinds, yeah. from all over the United States um, 
stop as they're passing through on their way to the gold mines. Yeah. Um, so it really becomes like the heart of the heart of the gold country, even though Sutter's Fort is not in a gold producing area. Um, it becomes like this stopover point. Um, and and it's, it's really devastating for the native communities because um, the, in the early, late 1840s, early 1850s, as the gold rush is heating up, gold miners and California territorial and state officials truly believe that there's no part of California that doesn't have gold lurking just under the surface. Were the so, Manu, were the Manu white, white people living there before the gold rush or was there no one, not, not much at all? No, so the, the vast majority of the California population prior to the gold rush was indigenous. Um, there were, you know, I don't know, 6,000 or so um, Mexican settlers living in California uh, at the time of the gold rush and probably another 6,000 or so um, I guess immigrants to Mexican California from other parts of the world including the United States, England, Germany, Switzerland, um, Ireland, you know all over the place. Yeah. Um, Hawaii uh, that becomes a, another topic of, of my research. Um, so there's a really small non-indigenous population um, and a much larger um, maybe as many as 100,000 uh, indigenous people living in California as of the, the time of the gold rush. Were there other um, tribes coming from further east in America as well as the, the settlers came further, further west, west? Or was there, if you know what I mean, trying to refer to? Yeah, um, so for the majority of folks who from outside of Mexican California that come to California prior to the gold rush. So before there's yeah. any gold, people who are coming yeah. to California for other reasons. Um, a lot of them are connected to the hide and tallow trade, um, the trade in cow hides and beef tallow for candle making. Yeah. Um, and, and they come via merchant ships, particularly from places like Boston. Um, there are overland immigrants um, that, that come um, over the California trail um, or they come across the Santa Fe Trail and then up north through Cal, you know, north into Northern California from Southern yeah. California via the Santa Fe Trail. Um, so yeah, it's a pretty remote, prior to the gold rush, California is like the end of the earth. Um, certainly Spain and then Mexico uh, believed it to be like their sort of, um, like their equivalent of Siberia, right? Like a place that you would get banished to or yeah. exiled to. Um, which is, is deeply ironic because I think the consensus today is that California is beautiful and the climate yeah. is gorgeous, right? Uh, everybody wants to live there, but back then, mm -mm, not at all. Um, so the gold rush really brings in um, California's first major population boom. I remember in the last, in the podcast episode um, about the gold rush, yeah. uh, you guys talked about boom towns. Yeah. Um, and, and all of, you know, like so much of California was, it was a boom state it was a boom region yeah. um you know tens of thousands of people showing up in a period of you know a couple of years was, was a pretty quick migration considering the very very small population of um of non-indigenous people uh prior to the gold rush how did this affect the indigenous sorry if i can't say the word right indigenous people when they are already living there how did they how did this have an effect on them so, you know, I kind of come in full circle here. So these folks who come to California for gold are like convinced that every square inch of California has gold just underneath the soil. Yeah, yeah, yes. And 
so what they want to do is they want to like get Indians off the land because they want to have access to the land for mining yeah. purposes. But where, where then do they go? Like if you're going to remove Indians, where are you going to put them? Yeah. Um, I mean, and this is to say nothing of the fact that of course, Indians don't want to go. Like the indigenous people of California yeah. are like not looking to move, right? They're not they looking lived to there for a hundred thousands of years already. Yeah. I mean, you know, the earliest uh, sort of point in time where um, anthropologists and archeologists can say like, yes, there was you know, human habitation in California, in Northern California, in the regions that we're talking about. I mean, this goes back like 19, 20,000 years. Yeah. Um, so folks, folks have been pretty well established here for, um, for a long, long time. time. Um, but, but if you can't, if, if there's no part of California that you're willing to say, hey, we're going to give up this portion and try to put Indians on reservations, right? Yeah. Then, then what's going to happen? So what ends up happening is that the state at first does nothing. Um, and it, it sort of becomes like open season on, on indigenous people in the mining regions. Um, if you don't want to have to compete with indigenous people over land, over resources, um, it, it's, it's almost just people decide it's easier just like to kill Indian people um, rather than attempt to either live alongside them, compete with them economically or attempt um, to yeah. remove them. Or they can just have employed them as cheap labor. So initially, like right after the gold was discovered in 1848, because there's a there's almost a year between the time that gold was discovered and the time that the president yeah. of the United States at the time makes the announcement that gold has been discovered. Yeah. Um, so there's like this year in 1848 where um, only really like local people know that there's gold to be mined. And anybody who has money to invest in trade goods is buying up cloth, they're buying up beads, they're buying up metal tools and implements, and they are paying indigenous workers to go into the gold mines and you know, the mining regions and pan gold and bring back that gold in exchange for trade goods. Yeah. So the very first gold miners in California were indigenous Californians, um, and they were working for what you know, Europeans or, or white Americans saw as trinkets. Um, but in the case of something like beads, indigenous people saw as cash. Um, indigenous Californians used uh, beads as a form of currency. Um, so gold meant nothing, but beads were cash. Um, and so folks went to work and they pulled out a bunch of, a bunch of gold from, from the mining regions and made, made some white settlers in California really rich. Um, so for example, John Bidwell, who was for a time California's uh, Senator to the United States Senate, a prominent, uh, prominent old sort of California settler, um, his ranch, Rancho Arroyo del Chico, uh, becomes sort of like the basis for the town of Chico and uh, the basis for the university, the land base for the university, California State University, Chico. Um, so he's a really prominent, wealthy guy. He made his fortune um, in, that, in that early trade native people uh, in exchange for panning out gold but so yeah so to answer your question yeah yeah um cheap labor was like sort of the first idea that white folks in california had for like you know how does what does the gold rush have to do with indians oh okay here's here's a way to make profit um through indian labor in these mining regions but as more and more um especially white americans begin arriving 
uh, in California, you have to remember that the United States in, in 1849 had just undergone Indian removal. So the Cherokee yeah. Trail of Tears, for example. Um, so by 1849, 1850, it's really clear to Americans that you don't, white Americans don't live side by side with indigenous people. Um, so they arrive in California and they're like, we're not really interested in Indian labor. What we're really interested in is Indian land. Yeah. Do we, do we have an idea where they came from, the first indigenous pe people of California, like how they wandered into the, and settled down in California? Can you tell us a little uh, bit about this? So this this deep prehistory is not my area of expertise. So I'm, I can okay. tell you sort of the quick version. Um, and so I, I think that right now the consensus among um, anthropologists is that the native the native people that I study, right, the, yeah. the Plains Miwokan Valley Nissen and speaking people, they're um, they're both both language groups are part of a larger language group called the Penutian language family, and linguists anthropologists um, believe that Penutian speaking people um, arrive in California from really the Pacific Northwest, the the Columbia River Basin, Alaska, um, or um, Oregon, Washington, yeah, yeah. Um, about I think like ten thousand years, twelve thousand years ago, um, and the current sort of modern Penutian language groups begin to emerge about two thousand years ago. Um, so, folks by two thousand years ago um, are are settling down, differentiating into different specific languages um, that that are like almost like the modern versions of, of those languages. Yeah. Um, so a long time. So did they have any specific religion or did they have uh, that they worship that, like, you know, the Aztec had or the Mayans had? And yeah, did they so, have anything um, like this? One of the really interesting things about indigenous California is, is how similar um, cultures are kind of across the state. Um, there, there are sort of regions where, like in the, the northwestern part of California on the coast, there's a lot of commonality. And that's different, say, from the societies of the San Joaquin Valley, so the southern central valley of California. Um, but probably those groups are a little bit more alike than those societies are with, say, Native people in the desert southwest. Yeah. Right. So there's a lot of like a lot of commonality across the board. And um, one of the common features of many, many California uh, indigenous societies um, is uh, animistic sort of religious practice. The idea that um, nature um, is infused with spiritual forces. Um, one of the common aspects of this religious tradition is the idea that, um, that coyote is a creator figure. So for Plains Miwok speaking people, um, there, one of the creation stories um, has to do with coyote creating human beings. Now, coyote is a trickster, right? Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with coyotes. I think coyotes are a North American animal. A little animal. bit. I know the animal, but not, not so coyotes are kind of like pesty, like they're pest type animals, right? They they eat your trash. Um, they get on your property. People are always trying to get rid of coyotes, right? They're like raccoons yeah. or um, or skunks or something. Like you want them gone. Yeah. Um, they're gonna mess with your pets. They eat cats sometimes. Like they're they're varmints, as we say yeah. um, in the southeast. Um, 
so you know coyote's like this trickster figure he's naughty he's garbage right he bothers yeah. people um and so uh coyote created human beings right that's a common um Ooh. aspect a common creation story uh, across many california indian societies so coyote yeah. is a big figure um and as far as religious practice um shamans um particularly um particularly shamanic practices related to healthcare. So like there was a real strong tie um, in their cosmology, in their religious tradition between uh, the health of people's bodies and sort of spiritual forces outside of people's bodies. So a lot of religious practice was, was really almost like healthcare practice. Like how do you cure people of diseases, right? Yeah. Um, how do you get these bad forces out of people's bodies? This wasn't like, like how do you say, uh like mad magical thing you heal your hand by doing like like this putting them together and just rubbing the body you're healed it was more like scientific or was it um you know that that's a good question um and and this is not something i know enough about the specifics of the practice to know um how based in science that it might have been um but i, I do know that that one of the um leading causes of disease um in this shamanic practice was uh, witchcraft, right? So the idea that somebody would have cursed you in some way. Yeah. Um, and so the, the idea of like finding the witch, um, figuring out the source of the witch's power, um, breaking that power. Um, so a little bit different than the, the more modern idea of, of faith healing or laying of hands um, to cure somebody. It, it was really more about figuring out who's the witch, how are they getting at this person? How are they hurting this yeah. person and taking away, um, taking away that power? Um, and you know, I don't know. I don't know what the success rates would have been um, for for shamanic practices. Um, yeah, I wish I knew. So they didn't have like a god, like uh, you know, like the I don't I don't know compare the Aztec again. They didn't have a god like they did, or did they have? They looked at the Toyota as a kind of a god, god-like figure. Yeah, he was. Um, that's tough, right? Because because God kind of um, or the idea of God or gods gives the impression of a figure who has outsized power or like absolute power over human yeah. beings and human affairs. And I'm not sure that we would say that, that um, certainly the, the Plains Miwok speaking communities and the Valley Nissanen speakers, I'm not sure that they had a, a full on God type figure. Um, but there were, were a lot of different natural, um, you know, figures associated with the natural world who had a lot of power, but but none none with absolute power. Even Coyote, who created human beings, didn't have absolute power over human beings. Yeah, there were. It's not like the Islam where you're not allowed to kill pigs, for example, because or eat or kill pigs because they they should kill coyotes. In that sense, that's a good question. I don't know. I, I'm gonna look that up now. I don't know. Um, I feel I feel like it would be hard. Um, so it wasn't like I a sacred like animal. With... Yeah, I don't, I don't know that Coyote was was sacred in that way because he was also a pest. He was a trickster. Yeah. He um he would try to mess people up, right? He was, uh, he created chaos. So he wasn't just uh, a creator he, uh, of humanity and a creator of life. He was also a creator of chaos. Bad things happened, right? Because Coyote was was a pest. Um, that's a good question. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to check that out.
So what was the commun communication like? I'm talking before the California Gold Rush, like with other tribes, did they get, get along well or did they have wars between the, them and the arrow? Yeah, one of the really interesting uh, things about, and I think that more and more um, scholars are kind of exploring this theme um, for native societies throughout North America, um, the extent to which like native territories overlap, right? Um, so, so the sense like if you're say you're a Plains Miwok speaker, um, and you're from a particular village in the southern part of the Sacramento River Delta, yeah. well, your closest neighbors might not be other Plains Miwok speakers. Your your closest neighbors might be Yokut speakers or Bay Miwok speakers, um, people who don't speak the same language as you. So you might actually have like closer ties with people who are not part of your broader cultural and language group than you do with other folks who are culturally and linguistically more like you. Um, so there was a lot of a lot of intermarriage between communities, um, neighboring neighboring societies, because sometimes yeah. you were just closer um, to those societies than to others within your group. So people were um, people were pretty cosmopolitan, I think, um, much more so than I think the popular stereotype of Native Americans yeah. would have you believe. Um, and, and of course, uh, being that we're talking about people who lived along to, well, one of the major rivers in California, um, the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta is the major um, river system in Northern California. Um, you know, these are folks who are accustomed to travel over long distances. Um, they, they're skilled with using, um, with boats and canoes to travel. Um, so, you know, these are, these are folks who um, know more about the world than just what's in their own backyard and know more about the people who are out there yeah. than just what's in their own backyard. So did they, have, did they have any rituals, like any specific rituals that you could talk about? Yeah, so I can I can talk very generally about a couple of things. Um, so one is the sweat lodge. Um, the sweat lodge ceremonies were a pretty key part of, um, of very many California Indian um, sort of spiritual practices and ritual practices. Um, and so I, I think I think people generally know what a sweat lodge is, right? Like you, you go into an enclosed yeah. space um, and a fire creates steam and then everybody gets super hot and then you leave the sweat lodge and, and ideally go jump like into a, like a, a river sauna or a lake. Kind of... It's like a sauna, but then when you're done, you go jump in cold water. Yeah. <laughs> it like shocks the system. Yeah. Um, so that was definitely a pretty common practice. Um, I do know Was that, there other reason um, behind this or did you just enjoyed doing this? So again, like, you know how there's that connection between like sort of healthcare and spiritual yeah. practice. So the sweat lodge is probably a good example of that. Like something that is supposed to be healthy for your body, um, but also like put you in a, put you in a mindset, almost like an altered state of consciousness, I would think, yeah. right? Because of, of being in the heat and in the steam. Um, so, you know, those two things go together. Um, another common ritual practice, and I'm, I'm less clear on this, uh, that, that folks from the communities that I study were involved in this practice, but further to the South, um, there was a, uh, type of, uh, plant that when processed properly, um, would, would give you like hallucinations. It created hallucin hallucinogenic yeah. effects. Um, and this, this plant, it's called Jimson weed and the, um, the ceremony, um, 
that went along with it was um, certainly Spanish missionaries hated it and thought that it was devil worship and, and deviant and destructive. Um, but the whole point of the ceremony was to put you in an altered state of consciousness, right? Um, so that was that was common further south, more in central and southern California. Yeah. Um, and then uh, things like the coyote dance. I have never seen a coyote dance. I couldn't tell you the specifics of a coyote dance. Um, but in the region that I study, almost every group has some version of a coyote dance, um, yeah. which makes sense, right? Coyote's the creator. But so those are a few things that I know about. Yeah. So uh, it's well known that the Native Americans moved around a lot seasonal. Did they do this in California as well? And what was one reason for moving around? Like, why did they have to move around when they did? So California's, um, California's Native communities are really interesting historically um, because, so there, there is some mobility um, because at different times of the year, different resources are available in different places, right? And they're hunter gatherers. And so they naturally are going to want to go to where those resources are located and yeah. take advantage of them, right? So fishing in certain times of year, plants that are ripening in other times of year. But California has like this really rare combination of uh, factors that make it possible, at least in my region that I study, they make it possible for indigenous people to be sedentary. And that's not, that's not terribly common among hunter-gatherers to be able to be sedentary. Um, but California, at least Northern California, where I study, has two things. It has salmon, um, which is bountiful and you can preserve it. Um, so people are able to lay by huge stores of preserved salmon um, you know, to, to sustain them during months when other food sources aren't very productive. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing that they have, and this is probably maybe the bigger thing, is they have acorns. So California has um, has just such a variety of different species of oak trees. Um, and the Central Valley of California um, in particular has some varieties of oak tree that are really productive. Um, and was this, was this for syrup or was it? Uh, so you would collect acorns from the oak trees um, and you had to process them correctly um, and leach out some of the bitter sort of tannins, like stuff that's in wine that makes wine a little bit bitter. Yeah. Um, you would have to leach that out. But once you'd done that, um, it, you could make it into a flour. You could grind the acorns into a flour and make bread. You could thicken soups. You could make um, cakes, uh, you know, almost, almost any kind of bread type product that you might think of um, from ground up acorns. And I mean, those literally grow on trees. <laughs> like they yeah. literally fall off trees. So there's this, this ability to be hunter gatherers, um, but still take advantage of this, this tremendous natural bounty. Uh, and then, you know, all the other things that you might think of that, um, that types of plant resources and animal resources from deer to antelope, to rabbits, to, um, you know, uh, berries, um, root plants, um, you know, all these kinds of things that people could take advantage of, resources they could exploit. But salmon and acorns meant that most California native society, at least in the area that I study, native societies could be sedentary because you can store acorns and you can store dried salmon. Was acorn a seasonal product or was it all year round? Um, so it's a seasonal product. There is one period of the year um, when acorns drop from oak trees. Um, but they're storable. So you just gather them up, 
and you store them um, typically in underground pits, sometimes in granaries that would be built kind of above ground. Yeah. Um, and that, that would be there for you um, all year round. California also has the advantage of not having winter. Um, there's a rainy season and there's a dry season, but there isn't, um, there's not, there's not like a season where things don't grow. Yeah. Um, so the natural abundance year round would have been. So, that not, so they didn't have to move, move around like a lot of other tribes had to. No, and you might have seasonal hunting camps or seasonal gathering camps, right? So maybe the manzanita berries don't grow in your backyard. So you might have to go to somebody else's backyard to get them. So you might have groups of people that would go um, when those berries were coming into season, but the whole village wouldn't have to relocate. So these are, these are people who are accustomed to staying in one place right. pretty much year round. So did it, did it grow anything on like weed, like the oh, like in the ground or did they, did it just so, gather from hunting and fishing? Yeah, so the, the, idea, the idea of people being hunter gatherers is kind of a misnomer. I think, I think that, that to some extent, any society that we think of as being a hunter gatherer society is tending their natural resources. They might not be planting crops, but they are actively managing their environment to make sure that those resources are available to them. So for, for native Californians, one of the things that they did very frequently um, in almost all regions of California to help increase the yield of acorns, to help kill off the pests that would harm acorns, to um, clear out the underbrush, uh, make room for new oak trees to grow, um, create better habitat for deer and antelope was burn. So they would have um, like fires, like controlled burns where they would target, okay, this is a region where we wanna make sure we light a fire, clear out the underbrush, clear out all the insect pests yeah. that would attack what we want, um, make this area um, a place where new growth will start to emerge that will attract deer and antelope and elk. Um, so, fire was one of the main tools that, that indigenous Californians used to manage their landscape. Um, so it's not agriculture like we think of it, but it definitely, the, the landscape of indigenous California was not an accident. It was very, very carefully managed by human beings to the point where um, there are certain varieties of oak tree that um, I won't say that they absolutely need fire in order for their acorns to germinate, but, um, but fire, like they've evolved in tandem um, with human fires, um, that fire actually increases the likelihood that these trees can grow and, and produce, you know, produce baby trees. Right. So it's well, well known that California, it was forest fires, seasonal mm -hmm. forest fires. Was, was this a thing back in the day as well? Or how did, it, did how did this affect the, the, the indigenous tribes? So one of the things that California's um, fire management officials are learning these days is that when, when California began suppressing indigenous fire management, um, it created the disaster that we see today with California having these regular um, devastating wildfires. And it's not the only reason that these fires happen today, but it's a major contributing factor. So instead of having every year um, different areas having controlled burns, right? 
especially clearing out that underbrush, which is so flammable. Um, so if you, if you remove the controlled burns and you allow this underbrush to build up, um, it's gonna go up at some point, right? And when it goes up, it's not gonna be manageable by human beings anymore, yeah. right? What would have been a small manageable fire now becomes a huge one that you can't manage. Yeah. So when you add into that climate change and you add into that, um, just the population pressure, people are building houses in places that are hazardous. They're just not safe places from a standpoint of fire safety. Um, to be building homes, and then you have a recipe for these huge fires that that are so devastating. So you know you got to be careful about like romanticizing the way that um, that native people, indigenous people anywhere in the world, uh, manage their environment because fire is dangerous um, and people get hurt by it, and um, and it kills animals and it kills plants. Um, so I, I don't want to convey the impression that there were only positive environmental consequences from setting fires, right? From this type of, of land management strategy. Yeah. But overall, um, it, was, it was probably the most important tool that indigenous people used in California to make the environment work for them. Was it devastating for, for the tribe if, the, if there was a forest fire in, if, if, if a forest fire happened? Because <laughs> they didn't have the tools to, to take them out as we have today, I'm not sure. Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't, I can't think of any evidence that I know of that would have documented indigenous people's responses to a forest fire. Now, it doesn't mean that that evidence doesn't exist. It just means I haven't come across it. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. You're asking good questions. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. But uh, yeah, okay. So let's go back to the California gold rush and uh, they, they send them to reservations, I imagine. How does this affect the, the indigenous tribe? How did they react to this? So this? This was the topic of my very first ever published article for the mm. Journal of Genocide Research in 2004. Interesting. Um, yeah, so, so at first there was real reluctance after the gold rush first kicks off. The state of California is very reluctant to commit to a reservation strategy. So they're begging the US government for help. California officials are saying, you need to send some Indian agents in here to do something because this isn't working. There's constant violence, there's constant, um, I mean, really it's, it's gold miners and also ranchers um, just killing indigenous people all the time in California, just overwhelming violence. Um, and their miners and ranchers are like, state of California, you need to do something. You need to help us out. You know, these Indians are stealing our cattle or these Indians are interfering with our mining. Um, they're stealing our stuff. And the more miners and ranchers come into California, the less indigenous people are able to make a living because they no longer can hunt and gather on land that has been claimed by white settlers as private property. Yeah. Um, and mining is literally ruining the rivers. Um, so the salmon that people would rely on, you know, to get them through um, the year, as miners are panning in these rivers, and especially increasingly as the 1850s go into the 1860s, as hydraulic mining becomes a major practice, where they just aim these high-powered jets of water at hillsides and mountainsides and blast away all the dirt, which then can later on be sifted and panned for gold. This just ruins um, salmon runs in California rivers um, throughout the gold producing regions and downriver from the gold producing regions. So native people get desperate and when desperate people need to eat, they're gonna steal. That's just 
That's yeah. just the way it works. Um, so miners and ranchers are like, they're stealing, they're stealing all our stuff. But um, whose fault so is it? Sorry? But whose fault is that? What? I mean... Whose fault <laughs> is it that they are stealing? If you're going to come and set up camp on land that doesn't belong to you, um, that belongs to somebody else, I mean, yeah. Like this is... And, and it's not that people didn't recognize this. This is what's so... Um, so perplexing and awful about this period of time. Everybody knew why Indians were stealing um, yeah. livestock and supplies from, from miners and ranchers. Everybody knew. You could see that native people were starving. Like people were starving to death and, yeah. and it was visible to everybody. It was, it was basically a concentration camp. They lived in. Well, so when, when the United States finally sends uh, some Indian agents into California, they, they're like, all right, we're gonna negotiate these treaties to get these native people to give up their lands where they're in danger because there are miners and ranchers that want to kill them and move to reservations where they'll be protected and we could promise them food and supplies. So they go through California in 1851 and 1852 and they, they negotiate all these treaties of removal with various tribes in the affected areas. And then they take their treaties back to Washington DC to the capital uh, of the US and any treaty that's negotiated on behalf of the United States has to be ratified by the United States Senate. And when these treaties are presented to the Senate for ratification, um, California's congressional delegation manages to convince enough people like, no, don't sign these treaties. There could be gold on any of this land. We don't wanna give any of it up. Yeah. Um, trust us, don't sign these treaties. And so in 1852, the Senate, the United States Senate refused to ratify these treaties. And so left with nowhere to go, California's native population was, they were like sitting ducks. Um, so in, in these regions that were, you know, in the gold mining regions and attached to the gold mining regions, well, then, then there's just overwhelming violence and, and nobody even attempting to stop it. Um, the state of California um, empowers militias to go into these regions for the purpose of killing Indians. Um, if any of your listeners are curious uh, to know more about this era, um, my, my colleague and friend, Benjamin Madley, recently has published a book, but it's, it's maybe a couple years old. I'm old. A couple years old seems recent to me. Um, but he recently uh, published a book called An American Genocide. Um, and I think the subtitle is the California Indian Catastrophe. I might be I might be playing fast and loose with the title, but he painstakingly documents this entire process yeah. um, of how all these events go down and its consequences for for Native people. So it's it's like a madhouse. It's just it's just open genocidal violence against um, Indigenous Californians throughout the 1850s. Um, eventually. The um, state of California uh, agrees that a reservation is necessary. And so the um, Office of Indian Affairs establishes a reservation in Round Valley, California, um, which is a very, very remote part of Northern California between the central, in the mountains between the Central Valley and the coast. Um, and, you know, people are removed to Round Valley, Indian people are removed to Round Valley um, in many cases against their will. Um, and, and then it does become like a concentration camp. The, the conditions there are very bad. Um, because one of the things that the United States with its Indian policy likes to do um, 
is promise native people, yes, if you just give up everything you have and go over here to this reservation, we'll take care of you, but then not spend any money to actually do the caretaking. Um, they weren't so they just Valley. one tribe in this reservation, right? There were many. Multiple. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and this is one of the problems um, often in regions like California, where you have a lot of different tribal territories that overlap and a lot of people living next to each other and stuff like that is that um, you end up establishing a reservation and then it's like, all right, put any Indian on this reservation. Just go out and get all the Indians you can yeah. and put them on this reservation. Um, but but what they don't take into account is like sometimes, sometimes people aren't friends. Sometimes this community has been historically at odds with this other community and they've been in a state of warfare for as long as anybody can remember. Um, and then those become really explosive and negative um, situations on, on reservations. Yeah. So it was definitely the same for Round Valley. Do you have an idea of what life was like in the inside? You talked a little bit, but in more in depth of what this was like inside the reservation. Yeah, so one of the things, one of the goals uh, for, for Indian reservations pretty much always in the United States in this period of time um, was to transform native people from hunter-gatherers into farmers. Um, sometimes, sometimes this is really comical because sometimes the native people in question are already farmers. Um, and so you're like, this is crazy. Like, just not in our about? sense. Yeah. Just, yeah. Or, or yeah, like they don't farm the crops. We want them to farm or, yeah. or they farm, but also hunt, but we're going to concentrate on the hunting yeah. and not pay attention to the farming. So the idea is that they become farmers like their white farming neighbors. Um, but if you ever have the opportunity, you, you probably won't because Round Valley is so remote. I grew up in Northern California. I lived there for most of my life and I went to Round Valley once, right? So it's not a place that people often have a huge opportunity to go to, um, but it's remote. When I went to Round Valley in 2009, um, visiting some friends who lived out there and there is one gas pump in town and the next nearest gas pump is two and a half hours oh. away over a mountain pass. Um, and the gas pump was broken and we almost Oof. thought we weren't going to be able to leave Round Valley until we could figure out, you know, until they could figure out how to fix this gas pump. It's like Hot California, you can't come, but you can never leave. Exactly. <laughs> yes, that's, that's a good analogy. Um, so, you know, it's extremely remote and it's, it's, um, I feel like the major agricultural exports of Round Valley today. So with all of the modern agriculture and, and science can do. I feel like Round Valley today produces cattle and it produces marijuana. And those are the two right. like key And cattle can subsist on really marginal lands. And of course, marijuana could be grown on extremely marginal lands of all sorts. Mariana is um, legal in California now, right? Yes. So, so even today, there's not a lot that you can do profitably in Round Valley, right? So you can imagine to take folks who have very little to no agricultural expertise I mean, or maybe they do have agricultural expertise, but not here, not in Round Valley, not in these conditions. Um, and then tell them, yeah, now, now you need to sink or swim. You need to farm this really marginal, unproductive land or starve. But also we don't really have tools or at least not as many tools as you're gonna need. Um, we don't really have much to keep you going until your crops are harvestable, right? So you're not going to be eating enough um, for the next year until these yeah. crops are, are going to be harvested. Um, 
we're going to put you in a situation where there is a possibility for high conflict with your neighbors, right? Because friends and enemies are all thrown in together. People are, are starving and desperate and competing yeah. over limited resources. So um, yeah, there, there were, there were definitely instances of um, folks trying to escape Brown Valley, right? Um, attempting to escape to go like really do anything anywhere, find work somewhere else, um, leave, leave the reservation just to hunt to see if somewhere else had something that you could hunt for food. Um, so it was, it was a really hard life. And the, the agents who administered Brown Valley, um, just probably just like anywhere else in North America were a, a, a mix of people who cared and attempted to get resources for the native people who were under their care. And people who didn't care, people who were just like, it's profits. Yeah, yeah I'm not. I'm. I'm getting my my salary from the U.S. government. I'm not going to worry about this. Mm. Um. So yeah, the, those kind of reservation conditions, and you know, you hear sometimes in history about you know, oh, people starved to death, uh, or there was a famine and people starved to death, or the reservation didn't have enough provisions and people starved to death. Um. But if if you could see what starving to death actually looked like, um, that concentration camp analogy is really apt. Um, because yeah, I mean, if you starve to death, literally you have gotten to the point where you're so emaciated that your muscles will not work to expand your diaphragm and allow you to breathe, right? That's, that's what it means to starve yeah. to death or, or more likely um, to be so malnourished that other diseases take you first. Um, so, you know, the, the scenario for people living under these conditions um, is pretty horrific. Is that a case of many reservations today in 2021 or? Um, so one of the hard parts about being uh, a Native American historian or a historian of Native North America is um, that Native people in North America are so diverse and their historical experiences are so diverse that you almost can't speak with any authority and say yes or no, it was this way or that way. But I'll say this, I don't think that the type of starvation that we would have seen at Round Valley in say the 1860s is what people experience commonly uh, on reservations in the United States anymore. Now that doesn't, that doesn't mean that malnourishment, malnourishment, um, and, and food scarcity and food insecurity are not a part of reservation life. They, abso they absolutely are, right? Um, because those are the conditions of poverty in the United States, right? And poverty does tend to be concentrated um, in many cases on reservations. Um, usually the statistic that people are most familiar with would be something like the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, uh, where the Lakota people, um, one, of the, one of the reservations for the Lakota people where um, there's like an 80% unemployment rate. Like unemployment is overwhelmingly the norm, right? Those yeah. are the types of places where uh, malnutrition, um, food insecurity, scarcity, like those kind of things continue to be a problem. Yeah. Um, but but not, not to the same sort of uh, ghastly extent that we would have seen in Round Valley. What is life like on the... On the uh... And Round Valley today. is still a reservation today, right? Like yeah. there's parts of Round Valley. So can you tell us um, a little so, bit about you what know, life is like? Speak... Yeah, so um, like I said, I visited Round Valley once. 
So my, my experience of seeing Round Valley today is not uh, comprehensive um, and not, not especially well-informed, but um, you know, it's, it's a poor rural part of California and California has a lot of rural poverty. Um, so that's, you know, completely consistent with, um, with other parts. Um, yeah, I, I would say that, that it had, um, perhaps compared with other parts of rural California, maybe fewer people of means and more, you know, the greater percentage of the population was impoverished. Um, but yeah, it very much had the feel of, um, of, a, of a poor rural um, California yeah. town. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming. I think we covered the most basic of the Native American tribes in California. Do you have anything you wish to promote? Anything you wish me to put in the description? Can I self-promote? Yeah, of course. Um, so if, if you're interested um, at all in knowing more about uh, the, the research that I've done and, and the stuff that I've published, um, I wanted to make a plug for two recent publications. Uh, one, I have a chapter out in an edited collection, a volume called Violence and Indigenous Communities, uh, Confronting the Past, Engaging the Present. Um, it's out with Northwestern University Press. Um, so please check that out if you can, ask your library to order it even better. Um, and also an article that I recently published in the journal, the Pacific Historical Review. So if you have access to um, academic journal databases, that's one to check out. The article is called Trapped um, and it is in the winter 2021 issue of the Pacific Historical Review. So check those out. Um, the more you Google me, the happier I am, so. Do you have any social media you wish me to plug in or any where people can find you? Maybe. Oh, not unless all you want to see is pictures of my kids and my cats. Um, yeah, unfortunately, I'm, I am not, I am too old to have been fully fluent um, with social media. So I don't. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. That's all right. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah. Uh, this has been World That Age 12. We are taking a look inside the indigenous tribe of California. Next week, we'll actually take a look at what it's like to be to become an historian what is does it take to document what it would, what a modern historian today works like versus before thousand years before and if you want to find us we are available on instagram at well that age 12 we are also exclusively on stereo which is a new podcast app where i interview not just historians but people from all sort of life this sunday we're going to discuss the infamous Snyder Cut from Zack Snyder's Justice League. So definitely check us out there. We are also on That's Not Canon Productions, which is a, which we will link down below. Thank you so much for coming. This has been with Back to Age 12. I'll see you next Thursday. My name is Alan. Thank you for coming. 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.